Hi, I'm Gus Wallen, and this is Not An Overnight Success, brought to you by Shawn Partners Financial Services. This is a podcast where we sit down with some very successful people from the world of business, entertainment and sport, and talk about their life's journey and what got them to the point that they're in today. Now, in today's episode, we are chatting with gold medal winning athlete, Kurt Fernley. Kurt is a three-time Paralympic gold medalist and two-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist. He has won over 40 marathons, including New York, Chicago, and London, and he's even crawled the Kokoda track. He is a sensation. Kurt was born without the lower portion of his spine. He grew up in a small country town, and he paved his way to being one of the best athletes on the planet. He has a unique perspective on what it takes, the determination and dedication to be successful. In this chat, we speak a lot about his disability and how it is viewed in Australia, and Kurt shares some cracking stories about his life, including one time when he met the Queen. Kurt makes you feel like you can take anything on. As for all these podcasts, Shaw and Partners have generously donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests. We discuss who that money goes to in the chat. The executive producer of this podcast is Keisha Pettit, with production assistance from Kelly Stubbs and Brittany Hughes. Let's get into our chat with Kurt Fernley. Kurt, how are you, mate? Good to see you. Mate, I'm loving life, actually. You know, she's she's been a challenging couple of years, but I've got to a space where I just... Life is just brilliant. I'm so glad to hear that because you're much loved, mate. So it's good to hear that you're that you're going well. What were you like as a kid? A rap bag. Uh, well, no. I, <laughs> I reckon I do remember all of my aunties and we were a big family. My dad was one of 10 kids and they always just used to call me bold. I was bold, mate. The kid crawling around that would find something to jump off, you know, that was always <laughs> looking for an adventure. Yeah. So rather than rap bag, I would just say I was bold. I love that. So you say you had a lot of people around you. What was the family makeup? Family. I was one of five kids, but we were the we were probably the smallest family within my community of Karkor. You know, lots of uncles. Uncles live next door, hundred meters down the road, five hundred meters down the road, and they all had around six kids. So we just grew up in each other's pockets. My grandma lived with me until she passed when I was about four. And it's funny, you know, like when I think about pivotal people in my life, I still think about my grandma and she just represents this real unconditional love, you know. And because Granny lived with us, that meant all of her sons and daughters would always be coming through our house. And it was it was just a lot of people around, a lot of big personalities and a lot of real kind of adventurous people. Mate, we weren't a very financial family. But we had a huge, about, what, 10 acres or so. We had half a dozen cows and a milker as well. So we would milk the cow every morning. They'd bring in a a bucket of milk. We had an outside dunny (laughs) and we had fruit trees and veggies. And I remember every weekend, a lot of the families would come together and we'd go blackberry picking and uh, like rabbiting and blackberry picking and fishing. And you'd come home with buckets full of blackberries and granny would cook up these blackberry pies and you'd smell them, you know, you'd smell them uh, as you, it, it felt like I grew up in the 50s. It was the 80s, but it was all done through a wood fire inside a wood stove, no hot water in the house. It would wow. be, yeah, it with the hot water, you'd have to go out into the veranda and then go into the bathroom. So it was a cold run to get to the hot water. But I think in that, I don't know whether you call it hardship or whatever you call it, in that kind of way that I grew up, you, you just learnt to appreciate everything. 
you know, you learnt to go out for eight hours and pick buckets worth of blackberries because you came home to this beautiful warm house that Granny would make the most beautiful thing that had, you know, whipped cream that she had taken off the top of the milk that people had brought in that day. It was 100% hillbilly. It was a real, a real wild <laughs> west kind of youth. I love it. I just, I want to go there with you right now, mate. I want to be eating that pie with you. I can see it in your face, how excited you are taking that memory back. What about you? Were you in a wheelchair early in your life or what was the situation there? Well, if I would have been born into any other regional centre, then yeah, I would have I would have been identified and placed into a wheelchair earlier than what I was. But the wheelchair, to me, I was born with half of my spine brought back home and the wheelchair was not an enabler in that part of the world. I think of the wheelchair now and some people, when they say things like confined to a wheelchair, the wheelchair is the opposite of something that confines you. It's something that gives you the world, but it didn't give you carcore. Car call was that if I was going to be engaging in my community, then I needed to figure out alternate ways of getting around. And it was crawling around the place mostly, uh, thrown on the back of my brothers and cousins. It was a way of just figuring out how to engage with the world, but knowing however you got there, you were welcome as you are which was the perfect way. I hope everybody, I wish that everyone was given that opportunity to be able to engage with the world as they are, you know, and feel like you are valued and feel like you are welcome and feel like you are genuinely a part of it, however it is that you you are able to kind of meet it. That was me, crawling around the bush of Kharkor, um, but feeling like I was welcome and feeling like I was a part of it. Well, I think what you've done in your life, if people were struggling with that thought, I reckon you've helped them get through it, mate, because you've been incredible with your attitude to just getting on with life with whatever else gets thrown at you. Look, the power of adaption, mate, I think that that is one of the things that disability, it's one of those overlooked things around disability when you welcome it into the workforce, when you welcome it into into the the school environment or whatever educational or, or sporting club is that it brings this natural form of adaption that we can all learn from. You know, we, we, it's more in your face when you have a disability. The lesson is tightly wound in a bow and presented to you, you, you know, undeniably. But that is the story of disability. That's what I see it as, is this this ability to be able to adapt and find a way through life and find a way into community. And it's one of the most undervalued assets, I think, that we do see when it comes to disability engaging in community. Have you always had this positive attitude, this sort of way of living? Have you, Or did you sort of grow into it? I have always welcomed the adventure. I would say that. Always welcomed the adventure of life. I'm not always positive. There's been a lot of stuff where I grumble my way through it, you know, and you do recognise the days that are miserable and, you you know, I think there's there's nothing wrong with grumbling, there's nothing wrong with cursing at what's in front of you, it's just a matter of engaging with it anyway. I would say that because I had a disability, I had community creating me, investing in me more than what they do, even the... You know, the kid that's non-disabled, that's, part of me thinks and I have this kind of constant conflict between gratitude and guilt at the life that I get to live. G- you know, gratitude because it has just been amazing. Every time that somebody 
Every time that I needed a fight to take place on my behalf, somebody was there fighting that fight, you know, but guilt because you recognise that you're one of the few people, you know, you're one of the fortunate ones because community identified you and saw that you were deserving of that fight. And you do have this guilt because you do see disability replicated all around Australia, but when you go into the world or into the more challenging parts of the world, you see this disability and the vulnerability and the isolation just amplified to levels that are tough to get your head around and you know recognizing how fortunate you are or I am it's one of those challenging parts of life but in simpler form yes I think that the optimism or the resilience in me is something that was created or amplified by my family and my community because they zoned in on me and they gave me so much strength. How much have you enjoyed being successful and how much of your success has your family enjoyed, like when you've won medals and so forth? Have they been there? Is it the first first phone call you make when if you're overseas and, and you haven't got them with you? What's that community been like for you now you've been able to give back? Yeah, it's a little bit. I don't know whether it's embarrassing to even talk about, but whenever I'm on telly, Whenever anything comes on telly, whenever I used to race, the very first phone call would be to mum and dad. Still is. No matter what happens on telly, if something goes out, I don't watch it. <laughs> I call mum and dad and I just say, I, I get their kind of conversation around it. And yeah, I think when I was 13 years old, I was introduced to wheelchair racing and my town come together behind my family's back and raised $10,000 for me. 200 farmers you know, cockies, concreters, fences. They found 10 grand that they couldn't afford to buy me a racing wheelchair and a trip overseas. When my family tried to stop them, they said to stay out of it. It's between us and the boy. That gave me the world from that moment. And I will forever be that kid that a town gave me, you know, my entire life you know that everything that's happened over the last 25 years doesn't happen without that it just doesn't so I have made sure that everything that's happened since then I try and be open about that and I try and give that community that did what was right that they couldn't afford but they did it because they believed in it I try and shine a light on that because it feels like I'll be forever that kid whose life was changed by that moment. And we need more people doing that, you know. We need more people recognising the power that we have to change someone's life in that moment. We won't get the gold medal. We won't get the fireworks or the sirens or anything, but there is so much power that we each have in each single day that we can make huge differences in people's lives. We just need to recognise those moments. Yeah. I love that. You had me teared up there. I could just imagine them all going, no, no, I'm giving him 50. You, hey, Bobby, you give him 20. <laughs> and they got to the 10 grand. And so what was that moment like for you? You then head overseas. You've got this racing bike. And I'm assuming it's very different to what you've finally raced on as obviously the technology changed. But how did you go at that event? And that, did that give you that inner drive to keep going down the sport track? Yeah, well, it literally was one night where I remember going down, it's the School of Arts, and you saw hundreds of people, a couple hundred people throwing in those $50 notes and just wondering 
what does this all mean? You know, you're 12 or 13 years old just wondering, what does this mean? I'd been out of the state twice or three times in my life. I'd never experienced anything outside of my own little world. And then all of a sudden I land in Fort Collins, Colorado with 800 other people in wheelchairs, all kids. And I was both found my family there, but I was also possibly the strangest thing that they've ever seen because here's this little hillbilly who's used to, you know, getting up and doing whatever the hell I want that's in my world and I land in the middle of this camp where I'm like in my chair, I'm out of my chair, I'm crawling, you know, to the shops, I'm speaking that they can't understand me, I'm speaking so fast, but I was so buoyant and so opted, like I was so ready for this that, I would have been like the circus come to town to these kids. I then got in my race chair and it was a, uh, made it look like it had come out of some conflict zone, I think. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty wild. And I was terrible. I was terrible. Like I come last in everything. I uh, did the 800 metres and I remember thinking that this is just some form of torture that, that <laughs> <laughs> it was, this must have been the longest race in the world, this torturous thing. But I saw this group of kids who were able to be them and there was this unifying thing amongst this community that we were all just so different. And it was at that period of time where I was realising that I was different, you know, like you're starting to enter into that teenage world where everyone's getting bigger but you're kind of going to be static, you know, and it's at that period of time where you don't want to stand out. Right. You don't want to be the kid that is the odd one out. But I was the odd one out. And every part of me was thinking that I would never not be the odd one out because there was no other kids with disabilities in my school. I never really saw disability outside of those commercials telling you not to drink and drive or else you'll be this busted up fella, you know. And seeing people with disabilities or wheelchairs when I go through the hospital and I was like, I'm not sick. It was a period of time where you just think, however amazing and warm my family and community were to me, it felt like there'd been a line drawn in the sand and I wouldn't go past that line. And that's when I found that world. And that's when, you know, Karkal gave me sport and sport changed everything. So it didn't start flash, but it gave you the inspiration to go, <laughs> I'm moving in the right direction eventually. So you did come bum last in most of those races and you're like, oh dear. So you go back to town and you say, thanks for the opportunity, but I'm going to get better. Or do you sulk for a little while? Or like what happens in your psyche as you're flying back into to Australia from being over in Colorado? Yeah, I actually think that I was a little embarrassed at the result. I do remember coming back home and just hoping nobody would ask. <laughs> 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 I had a lot of fun and I made <laughs> lifelong friends at that camp. And, you know, so I still got mates that I met from that one camp in Colorado. But I landed and everyone wanted to talk about the racing and I wanted to talk about everything else, I think. But I knew that I wanted to get better. I just knew I wanted to be better. Yeah. And then my teacher saw that and she found 
linkages to, to introduce me to my coach. She spent every single lunchtime trying to give me access to different sports and she would eventually find my coach and my coach then would teach me and work in a partnership me, with me for, for 25 years. So your teacher is much love. What's her name? Let's give her a rap. Oh, she hates it when I give her a rap. She's like a typical country teacher. Well, let's do it. Yeah, her name is Maureen Dixon and Dicko is a legend. She really is. That's what it's all about. Good on you, Dicko. And after you come back to Australia, your teacher comes on board. At some stage, you've got to start getting better. <laughs> and at some stage, you start winning stuff. So what was it like when you first started going, oh, actually... I've got a coach and I'm doing what I'm told and it's all working out pretty well. And then when you start winning, was that important to you? I don't start winning for quite a while, <laughs> like a long while. I was I was like mediocre as a junior and then when I became a bit better as a junior, my coach flipped me into the opens before I started winning. So I, I was starting to get to the process, to the point where I would be able to win a junior title and he, he said, I, we had spoken about what we wanted and I wanted to see whether or not we could become, the, you know, the best in the world. And being the best junior doesn't get that. You know, I think actually six, too much success young, it's a bit of an inhibitor. You know, you, I think that learning how to lose and taking the gains out of the losses, you get greater gains than taking gains out of wins. Mm. Eventually that would, would change. But I had a solid decade of training with Dorsey before we started winning. And then once we started winning, we won more than we would lose or close to. Mm. What 72 marathons, 42 wins, 20 places. So winning much more or podiuming much, you know, there were 10 out of the... 72 that we didn't get on the podium, but still winning 60% of every single start. The win felt close to unattainable, not completely unattainable, but it felt close to unattainable, but also was the driving force behind everything almost. You know, like everything was about seeing whether or not we could win, but there was always this thought that maybe that would never happen. The first win was amazing. It was in Athens in 2004. I hadn't been world champion. I hadn't even made it into a world championship final. And then I win a, two Paralympic gold medals in one games. And the win, it's like that first one that you become absolutely undisputed best in the world. It etches a little piece in you where you know that should that day you turn up and be the best that you can possibly be, you are the absolute best in the world at your craft you don't lose that, you know, that scratched itself in me. And you do recognise when you look back, though, you do recognise that there are a thousand things where it all could have fell over. But I probably didn't recognise that until later on in the piece, I guess. First tournament was just the most, it's like a, a vacuum that you've created that you've got. And I did have my mother and father with me. And you cross that line you spend this moment with them and my coach and my trainer and my mechanic, you know, you bring everyone in and it feels like it's a vacuum where everything's removed by joy. And it's just bloody beautiful. You've taken me back there because, of course, I watched it and I've watched you many times. 
I've watched you go past me a few times when I was doing marathons myself and half marathons and, and whatever. <laughs> Gee, you go fast. What is the pace of your bike when you're absolutely in sync and going, and going as well as you can? Well, mate, we did do the hardest marathon in the world together. Thank you. The New York Marathon in 2014, yeah. I think it was. 15, 14? Yeah, 14, 14 yeah. One of those ones. Yeah. Oh, believe me, I remember. I remember it's 2014. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was It was brutal. I just remember that it was like 60 kilometre an hour headwinds and head crossed the entire way through New York. It was freezing cold. They wouldn't even let us race over the bridge. It was so windy. Mm. Uh, in the wheelchairs, we average, the fastest marathon that I ever did was one hour and 18 minutes and I think 32 seconds. That was in Boston Marathon, and the winner that day was 0.3 away from me, and he broke the world record in the marathon. But the average time is about an hour and a half. You, It's about a 30-kilometer-an-hour average. But downhills, you could crest 75 to 80k an hour. Uphills are just a struggle, and you do what you got to yeah. do to get to the top. I did remember, I think I was in a race with you. When I say I'm in a race with you, it sounds very la-di-da. You were racing and I was behind you. And <laughs> it was around in Sydney, around Lady Macquarie's chair. I think it might have been the Sydney Half Marathon. And you got to a point and it was like a bit of a steep thing before you then rolled down. And it just seemed like every piece of your body was just helping you get to, get to the top. And then you knew then you were going to be okay. How tough are you mentally? And do you have to be tougher mentally than physically fit? To win a race, you've got to build a mentality that is just louder than any sort of any sort of physical thing. Obviously, you, you're, you're working out and you're building a body that is quite strong, but you're alongside that, you're creating either a voice or an idea that runs parallel to all of that strength training. And when I'm in a race, every part of me is about nailing that race. At the end of a race, the, my last race for Australia, average heart rate was 195 beats per minute. So you're constantly just on the rivet. If you're going up a hill, you're tearing away at your tricep. You're tearing away at your pec. You know, it, it's like a constant push up until you get to the top. You get to the top and you need to have arms that are like pistons. They have to fire and quicken up and be, you know, you need to get to 40, 50 kilometres an hour before then you grab hold of your abdominals, you clench them, you twist them, and you pull them inside your rib cage so that you can get aerodynamic and you can get your head as low as you possibly can so that you can get the high speeds going down. So there's never, although it might look like you're coasting down the hill on the other side during a marathon, you're actually screaming on the inside because you're running on about, when you're in your tuck, you're only getting about 40% of your lungs filled and you've just climbed and ripped all your muscles apart going up the hill. So there's very little recovery. There's very little moments where you are comfortable. People ask me whether or not, I would ever, do I miss racing? I don't miss the person that I would create when I was racing. He was, it felt like I would create this beast, <laughs> this freaking thing that was just, I would scream at myself during a marathon. I would have this thing that just would be relentless, relentless. And a lot of it was reminding myself constantly how strong I am and that 
positive affirmation, that visualization, but it was an intensity that I am so grateful that I will never go back to. <laughs> yeah. I loved every minute of racing. I loved it. And it, it was so much fun creating this thing, this your body and mind, creating, it was a lot of work, but manipulating the idea of who you are and, you know, creating this voice that was stronger than any of the discomfort that you were going through. I love that, but I will never bloody do that again. You're done. I am... It is so far behind me. It's like that part of me has now died, not in a negative way, like in a positive way that I get to tie that up and celebrate it for what it is, but know that I never need to be it again. It's like that little man on your shoulder going, okay, I've served you well. You don't need me anymore. I'm going to go and have a little retirement myself. That's a (laughs) nice way of looking at it. Yeah, for sure. Just quickly interrupting the episode to say a very big thank you to the sponsor of this podcast, and that is Shaw and Partners Financial Services. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices across Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates, and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S H A W for sure. Shore and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth. And let's get back into the episode. So much traveling with your chosen sport. And people say to me, I have a quote here, I want to read it out, that you actually changed the way that we view athletics in Australia. There's a lot of sacrifices going into that. But when people say that, we're talking really serious communicators and people that we trust and love say that you actually changed the way that we view athletics in Australia. How does that make you feel? Uh, I, I don't do well with compliments. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I try not to think about it too much, the impact, because although I say that that part of my, the competitive part of my life has died, it's done, there is so much to bounce off and do still. And I try not to think about it's like when you win a marathon, you pull the stuff that is useful going forwards and then you leave the other stuff behind. Right. <laughs> you know, like, I don't like to think about my impact on community because I want to have impact tomorrow and the next day in, in different ways. So I, I try not to think about it. Well, I did recognise that there was a lot of people that had come on the journey with me, especially in the Commonwealth Games in the Gold Coast. It had been a you know, you think about how wheelchair racing had started and we were, in the early days, you race and no one would ever know. And you're writing a press release, you know, at midnight in some unknown bloody country and it's not getting picked up outside of the Blaney Chronicle, you know. <laughs> and then you end up getting to a point where that's just completely different and there is interest and community have come along on this journey and you've got amazing stuff. But I don't know, I just, I, I, I don't, if you thought about it too much, I think it would get in the road of what's next. I can understand that. Let us do that for you then. let's talk about your team because you've mentioned them a few times but mainly family and your wife and so forth what's that like because you're sacrificing a lot they're also sacrificing a lot yeah I often talk about the perfect day when I was racing there were I know that there were four perfect races just perfect nothing better in the world there are now 
hundreds of perfect days that I've had with the family. <laughs> you know, they, they, and I wouldn't swap any of them for any race. It made, during my racing career, it made the racing more meaningful to me. I was able to share something that I loved in the last four years of my career with Harry and Amelia, many of the days, and Sheridan, of course. They'll probably never forget it or never remember it, but I'll never forget the amazing moments with them. But there are equally as amazing moments when I crawl into the bush with my young fella looking for koalas or something like that, you know, or I've got a farm now and digging a post hole with Harry while we're putting a strainer up, you know, a completely different and he's going to have an interesting take on his own really unique take on disability and life because some of his adventures, I would be interested to see what kind of view he has on it at some point. But I just find that having your family and engaging and making sure that they are part of all the adventures that are that are taking place and then you get to be a part of their adventures as well is just, I wouldn't, and I think that's why I was so confident and comfortable with disappearing from that wheelchair racing world is because I have this other thing that's just so much more meaningful to me at that point in time. And having the kids just meant I was so confident and comfortable with turning my head away from wheelchair racing because I got to the point where I would rather have a day crawling into the bush with the kids or going swimming with the kids than racing New York again. Yeah, that's a cool place to be. Yeah, it was. Where did you meet Sheridan and was it love at first sight? Did you have to literally (laughs) wear her down eventually or how did that all work out? Well, I did teach Sheridan wheelchair basketball when she was in year eight. Uh, She was from Kelso High. I was in Blaney High. I was in, I think, year 11 or 12, but I never saw her again after that. And although I gave her her sport team vice captain badge when she was in year 12 as well, as I was visiting Bathurst, but we met at uni. Once we met, it was, I'm trying to think how long it was. We were so young, like I was about 22, Sheridan was 20, and I think we just, within three months, we were together, and what is it now? It's probably 17 years later. I never really wanted to get married, and I I think Sheridan always did want to get married, and there was seven years until I would ask, but... (laughs) I think that we were both, Sheridan is, the thing that I love about her and the thing that stood out is that she was up for any adventure, any point in time, something would pop up. She was very adventurous. She's very strong as well. She is an incredibly kind of just deal with everything that comes through the pipeline and just figure a way through. Uh, it was pretty, it was probably about six months in that I thought this is, this is going to be around for a while. if i asked her the same question would she say the same thing i don't know we don't do a lot of media we don't like it's always i've always kind of felt that the relationship is ours and everything else is you know all the other stuff that happens that's out there but there is always an in here we did one interview and they asked uh they asked sheridan what's it like being my carer Oh, ah, oh, gee, boy, that <laughs> I was, I was pitied the journo. She got into it. 
But that's how, like, disability sits in this weird place with disability and sport is that you get one moment, you get given these moments of admiration and these huge stages, but around the corner you get moments of absolute pity where your wife, your partner, your friend is called your carer by an educated, sport-loving journo who, who you can't believe would think that that was appropriate, but they do. Or you, you walk around that stadium and somebody would look at you who wasn't at the event and would ask you how shit it is to be in a wheelchair, you know? Like you you live kind of tiptoeing in these these different worlds that is a a really kind of unique place to be, but we did keep our relationship outside of that and probably mostly still. So I've never really heard Sheridan really describe that period of time. I might get to ask her one day. She does talk about how I was never, like it was never that type of a relationship. She, She met me and I was the one that would open up the door for her. There was never, and that's how she responded. She, she first ripped into the journal, but then she said, for the first, I don't do it now, obviously. After 20 years, you stop opening the door <laughs> as much as what your heart's did. Do your best. But that was probably our relationship, is that it was not what anyone in the world, I think, would assume it would be. Yeah, I love it. I just see the smile on your face when you talk about it, you know, and talk about your kids and the fact you've been able to walk away from such a, platinum not just gold a platinum career and just be so happy Uh, that's what I love I know I haven't got a lot more of your time and I know how precious it is but I did want to talk to you about Kokoda because uh gotcha for life my foundation some guys down in the southern shire of Sydney have put together a pack of about 35 of us were meant to go last year COVID mucked us up but we are going this year and the bloke who took you is taking me and he said that it's the most incredible feat of all time, the fact that you crawled the Kokoda Trail. Oh, you must have built that beast up in your mind to do that one. Yeah, it was brutal, brutal. Like it was the 18 months of getting ready for it, the 18 months of building, you know, the equipment to protect my skin. It was the the 18 months of teaching myself to crawl again, but I could have done another 10 years of it. And it wouldn't have been enough. <laughs> it was, right. it's the things that get you that you weren't expecting. Uh, the emotion of seeing disability on that track was pretty full on, but also the constantly sitting in mud. You know, like you finish a day and like most people are walking, they kind of just remember constantly feeling like I was sitting in wet. The takeaways from that place, one, Wayne Weatherall, who you're doing with, I had tried a couple of times to get other people to engage in the idea of letting me do it. And they said immediately, you know, you're an idiot, hang up the phone. Yeah. Wayne had just saw me race in Beijing and he's like, okay, I think it's a bit out there, but I want to meet you. Flew down to Newcastle. We did a crawl immediately together and crawled for about three hours. And he's just like, yeah, this is on, let's do it. 100%, let's go, you know. 18 months from there, we would do it together. I think that that place, there is something incredible about it. There is something that I think is essential in putting your fingers in the dirt of where Australians have sacrificed so much so that we can be us. And also spend time with the PNG people who are the most incredibly hard, 
yet kind and warm and loving and beautiful people that you're ever going to meet. And often you find when you go into those parts of the world where it is most challenging and you think that it's, oh, how could people live, you know, in a way that is so bloody hard? You look around at those kids that are there and they are just so happy. There is so much joy that is found in parts of the world where you would think that the struggle is just so bloody tough. And the way that they interact with each other, the, the contact with each other, the sharing with each other, mate, that trek was by far the most damaging time of my life. It was brutal. 11 days, nine hours a day, just constantly in the mud. But the kindness and the support and the love from the people over there, that was by far the most meaningful thing then. I always say that there is an etch from that moment in the first moment that I won, that etch into your DNA, you know, scratches in there that you know on your day you can be the absolute best in the world. Kokoda etched its way into me as well. Yeah. That there is not a day that I go through that is one of those hard days, those bloody miserable days. You know, the days that you almost dread having to do, and there are, but it's like all i got to do is close the eyes and go back to that mud track where your body feels like it's ripped apart but there is a porter next to you called mac who gives you this big bloody smile <laughs> who at the end of every day says that if you want to be in moresby i'll put you on my back and i'll be in there by morning every night he would sidle up next to me and he would say that to me or you remember just dragging yourself and just recognizing the discomfort but you were able to be okay in that you know the the pain the discomfort the struggle but it's all right and getting to a place like that and going through that has been incredibly valuable because we're all going to struggle we're all going to feel like we're dragging ourselves through mud and that's okay most times it'll end but like on that track if you've got people around you if you're able to share the journey then it just is so much more meaningful. And that's what the track really left me with, that I can crawl weeks in the mud. I can deal with the discomfort as long as I've got the love and support of the people around me and the understanding of why I'm doing it. I cannot wait. I'm taking my son, who would be 22 then, and, yeah, just to share that moment with a few mates as well. I, I cannot wait. Wayne is a, you know, infectious, isn't he? He's incredible. So he is. I'll keep you uh, posted on how we go there. Before we finish off with the fast five questions, you did mention those four perfect races. Could you just share those four perfect races? You don't need to go into much detail, but just for people listening so they can remember perhaps those races or go and search for them themselves. Yeah, the first one is Athens in 2004, the marathon I'd win by three and a half minutes, flat tire, the last 5Ks, but just perfect. Uh, the second one was in Beijing in 2008, the Paralympic marathon to defend the gold. The third one was Gold Coast. Last race, average heart rate at 195 beats per minute. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't get a more challenging uh, space in this world than try to hold something like that, but did it amazing. A fourth one is a Second place that I got in New York, chair fell apart in my hands. I get 20 kilometres into the race while I was leading, I was trying to get my fifth straight win. But when it all fell apart, everything still kind of bounced back 
on its own. It's like the instinct went, well, how do I still win? And 72 marathons, not one time did I not make it to the finish. And on this race, when everything fell apart, the instinct and the voice that I had built was just like it grabbed hold and it it was perfect. I could not have manipulated that 42 kilometres in any other way that would work out any better than a, this second place, 32 seconds away from the winner. That's so awesome. And just on, on the Paralympics, I know we've spoken about it on my sports show and how passionate you are about it, but can you believe how awesome it is and how many people are into that as much as the Able Body Olympics? Yeah, mate, one of the most amazing things that I saw is that we really tried to create a culture of the mob, of the community, of the family, and connect to the very first Paralympian, which is Uncle Kevin Coombs, an Indigenous athlete who was unable to participate under an Australian passport. Because he was Indigenous, he had to apply for a British passport, an honorary British passport, to compete for the Australian Paralympic team. And he said that it was a kick in the guts, but nothing was going to stop him. And he said, Uncle Kevin set the tone for who we are. And seeing seeing this team really adopt that as the culture and really own it. I think that we were creating it in the last two games. When I saw it from afar, I recognised the true impact that we can have in our community. Paralympics will be the one that you want to bring your kids to. It's the one that I will bring my kids to. Couldn't agree with you more, mate. Um, your favourite holiday destination? Anywhere where I can see the water. Anywhere. You know, I love Fiji, but really it's anywhere where I can sit down in a space and look at water. I just, for some reason, it just chills me out. You're up in Newcastle. Well, Newcastle born now, they love you up there, don't they? You and Andrew Johns and Maddie Johns, I mean, <laughs> you're the kings of up there. Do you love being up in Newcastle? Yeah, mate. I, I come here in 03, but wild horses couldn't drag me away. There is, a, It's the bush on the beach. And I love being a part of a community that has pride in itself, like real real pride in who it is and what it what it does and it was immediate to me when I come up here that it really had this dug into the trenches pride of everything that is Newcastle and yeah I, I'm not far from the beach here in in Hamilton but also I've got my fix for the property and I've got a little farm out at Dungog as well so I escaped to the bush also. Perfect place for you and the you and the kids and and your missus to to escape. Absolutely. Your favourite movie? Oh gee, I'd have to. What, what is my look? It, it depends. So I use both music and movies to put me in a right space. Uh, the day before a marathon, I would watch Warrior or, or Gladiator or something or or Rocky. Or, but then I just love comedies. <laughs> uh, the, the Life of Brian. I must have watched that. Uh, I must have watched that a million times. Right? <laughs> Seriously, I could watch that. I could watch that right now. I could watch that after a race, you know, something that is just lighthearted and fun. But I always think about music and movies and, and arts, you know, in general. It has the ability to manipulate and shift your arousal, your mood. And so I see them as kind of tools and it just depends. What about your music? Who's your favourite musician or band? What's your favourite concert you went to? Ah, uh, the favourite concert that I went to, Paul Kelly. He's definitely my favourite muso because he sings with substance, like he tells a story. It's not about glitter. It's about representing him or those around him or the the atmospheres that are, that he's in in a, in a meaningful way. And one of his concerts, I remember I was on my mate's shoulders. It was just, yeah, it was just the, the greatest. Meeting him a few years later and having a couple of red wines was also just one of those, it's one of those moments where you go, 
it's a weird world. Right? <laughs> like it's a, it, there's been a few of them. There's been a few of those moments, but that was one of them as well. Because you would be in a situation at times where you just go, well, what's, what's happened here? How have, I, how, have I, how have I got here in your life? Because you put yourself out there, right? There was one time where me and Sheridan were having a yarn to Bart Cummings. Oh, I loved Bart. Bart was comfortable at the Carcourt pub and comfortable with the Queen. And both of those characters did not shift. He was the same bloke and would be the same to sitting down having a yarn to my old man as he was sitting down having a yarn to royalty. And I actually got to meet the Queen with him. And we're sitting down across the table from us. Next to me is Bart crosses the queen and i just remember thinking that that's a long way away from fingers in the dirt at carcor and then all of a sudden you're in westminster abbey doing a speech with the queen a meter away from her or you're having dinner with her the next day or whatever that is it's it's been there's been a lot of those moments where you just shake your head and there are a thousand little pieces to this puzzle and if one of them isn't contributed then it all falls apart. I love that. I love the I love the thought of you doing that as well. Just looking around, going, "Well, this is pretty cool. <laughs> this, is <good. laughs> this is this is a bit weird. I'm rolling with it. Yeah, going, <laughs> this is a good feed, uh, but it's still a bit weird. <laughs> You'd hope there'd be a decent feed with the queen on board. What was she like? Did you like her? Did you have a chance to have a bit of a chat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was lovely. We met a few times now. I do laugh because I did meet her with the first time I met her was with Bart and the media come up to me after I had this yarn and we were talking for, because he introduced me to her, you just kind of hit the ground running. So talk, talk, talk. And the media come up and they said, what was your conversation with the Queen? And Bart just grabbed me by the shoulder and he goes, you don't say a bloody word. Tell them to have their own conversation with the Queen. (laughs) (laughs) He said, that yarn, it's between you and her. And I just, okay, and I've never spoken about it. So I love it. That's beautiful. I I do love that. Um, Last question, mate. Your favourite charity, because Sean Partners, they want to give $10,000 to a charity of your choice. And if you could tell us who that is, but also what they would do with the $10,000 so we can sort of get an understanding and perhaps some people can then support them as well themselves. Yeah, mate, I uh, one of the most meaningful parts of my life has been engaging with the Rubin Centre, which is a within the Rubin Centre, they educate 1,800 kids in uh, the Makuru slum in Nairobi. Within that... We have the Kurt Fernley Centre that is uh, educating around 80 kids with disabilities. And I would go over there with my wife in 2013 and see eight mothers who were given a kilogram of flour to bring their kids off the street or in their house because most kids with disability, they live either on the floor of the house and never leave or uh, potentially because it's seen as... It's complicated, the story of disability in the developing world. Disability is seen as the sickness and curse of disability. And the mother is often the one that is then blamed within the family unit for bringing it into the family. So they are ostracised and left with dealing with the complications around disability on their own. So the Makuru Centre back then brought eight mothers in whose kids were living on their back or tied on their front. And then they were able to create the Kurt Fernley Centre that gave five days a week, eight hours a day, three meals a day, access to occupational therapists and physiotherapists. Then when they're brought into the centre, mainstream across into 
non-disabled classes so that it, it meets the ideology that I truly believe that disability needs to be everywhere. We use it as a focal point to bring the kids out of community, out of isolation, but then give them the ability to, to be included through the mainstream setting. There's a little kid there in a wheelchair who I went over just before COVID, two kids, Peter and John. I push into the school and three kids are pushing them over to me to meet him. And I sat him down immediately and I said, hey, you never let a kid push you, okay? I want to see you build these muscles up. Because it was told to me when I was 13 that you never be pushed. You choose where you go and how you go there. For the next week, I would see kids try and push these kids in wheelchairs and the kid would, John and Peter would turn around and whip them away. And now you see photos and videos of them racing up and down the school, but you, they just needed to be told that they are strong, you know, that they can, you never, you choose where you go and how you do it. It's been incredible to see the development of that program in there. And it's ran by the Edmund Rice Foundation. They've still been doing it through COVID, which has just created a lot of challenges. And um, I marvel at their work and the people that engage in that setting. And I cannot wait for the day that I can get back over there and see them. But they need the, um, they need the support. They need uh, every dollar goes over there and it does make a difference. I'm really grateful for your supporting sponsors that they're, they're able to make that contribution. Absolutely. And we'll make sure that we let them know it's from you. And then when you next see them, you can go and see those two boys again and see how much they've been able to take on board what you said. I, I just love chatting to you, mate. I really have. I could have spoken to you. I, got, I hardly even got through my questions because you've said something and it made me want to <laughs> ask you another question. But, um, you know, it's been absolutely wonderful. And I just take care of you and your family. And once we can have a conversation face-to-face, that'd be nice. Sounds good, Gus. Well, that was Kurt Fernie. And what I loved about that is that it's just nothing's ever going to stop him to go where he wants to go. And that should be fantastic life advice for all of us that are listening. He never said no. He cracked on. He did things with a smile on his face. He's a man that I admire and a man that I love. Coming up next on Not An Overnight Success is Lisa Wilkinson. Lisa Wilkinson is one of Australia's most respected journalists and media personalities. It seems that almost everything that Lisa touches turns to gold, from becoming the editor of a national magazine at just 21 to the longest standing female host of the Today Show. Lisa knows a thing or two about hard work and success. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we ask that you share it with someone who you think might get something out of it. You can also subscribe to this podcast on whichever platform you're listening on so that our episode updates as they are released. A big thank you to Shaw and Partners Financial Services who have generously supported this podcast and also donated $10,000 to the charity of choice of each of our guests to thank them for their time. Shaw and Partners are an Australian investment and wealth management firm who manage over $28 billion of assets under advice. With seven offices around Australia, Shaw and Partners act for and on behalf of individuals, institutions, corporates and charities. For more info, you can check out their website at shawandpartners.com.au. That's S-H-A-W for sure. Shaw and Partners Financial Services, your partners in building and preserving wealth.